Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode we're going to take 2 Samuel chapter 1, where David's going to mourn the death of Saul. And David's going to learn of Saul and Jonathan's death. We'll just take the first four verses. David hears the news in Ziklag. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So King Saul and his three sons were killed in battle against the Philistines, dying on the slopes of Mount Gilboa in 1 Samuel 31 verses 1 through 8. And it was a sad ending of a tragic life, concluding the story of a man who came to the throne humble but left it hardened, bitter against both God and man. So towards the end of 1 Samuel, despairing David left the people of God and allied himself with the Philistines. God prevented a complete alliance and brought David back through heartbreaking circumstances, right? The Malachites stole the families and possessions of David and his men, strengthening himself and God. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David defeated the Malachites and brought back everyone and everything. So though David still lived among the Philistines, he was a changed man since his heartbreaking circumstances and since strengthening uh, himself in the Lord. So when David came back triumphantly to Ziklag, he knew a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites just ended, and he certainly was concerned about the outcome of the battle. So David knew that this was bad news because the messenger had the traditional expressions of mourning for the dead, right? The clothes were torn and dust on his head. That was the Jewish way of mourning, right? Renting of the clothes. So therefore, he immediately reacted with a humble mourning. So though greatly reduced by the Amalekite incendiaries, that town apparently was not so completely sacked and destroyed that David and his 600 followers with their families could still find some accommodation. So we're going to get this Amalekite's tale in verses 2 through 12, and as the narrative of Saul's death given in the last episode was inspired, the Amalekite story, simply a fiction of his own, invented to ingratiate himself with David, the presumptive successor to the throne. It is unlikely that Saul would have been leaning on a spear unattended by Israelite warriors as the Philistine chariots charged him and had to call on a stranger who just happened to be standing by. So David's question, how went the matter? Uh, evinces the deep interest he took in the war, an interest that sprang from feelings of high and generous patriotism, not from views of ambition. The Amalekite, however, judging him to be actuated by a selfish principle, fabricated a story improbable and inconsistent, which he thought would procure him a reward, right? He was setting himself up. So having probably witnessed the suicidal act of Saul, he thought of turning it on into, into his own account and suffered the penalty of his grievously mistaken calculation. And you can compare 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 9 with 1 Samuel chapter 31 verses 4 and 5. All right, verses 5 through 10, the Amalekites victory or story. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul, leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard 
followed after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So some wonder if this Malachite told the truth. He said he mercifully ended Saul's life after the king mortally wounded himself in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 4. And it may be that he merely was the first to come upon the Saul's dead body, and he took the royal crown and bracelet to receive a reward from David, right? He was after his own interest. The whole account which this young man gives is a fabrication. In many of the particulars, it is grossly self-contradictory. There is no fact in the case but bringing of the crown or diadem or and bracelets of Saul, which, as he appears to have been a plunderer of the slain, he found on the field of battle. And he brought them to David and told the lie of having dispatched Saul merely to ingratiate himself with David. And we can gather this was a lie because of 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 5, says that Saul's armor-bearer saw that he was dead. So... If we do take the Amalekite story as true, this is a chilling statement. In a unique war of judgment, God commanded Saul to completely destroy the people of Amalek in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Saul failed to do this, and an Amalekite brought a bitter end to his tragic life, right? So, though the Bible does not specifically say it, Amalek is commonly regarded as an illustration of our fresh, uh, fleshly carnal nature, right? Like our fleshly nature, Amalek focuses on its attack on the tired and weak, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. Amalek does not fear God, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. God commanded a permanent state of war against Amalek in Exodus chapter 17, verse 16. Um, the battle against Amalek is only one in the context of prayer and seeking God, Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. Like our fleshly nature, God promises to one day completely blot out the remembrance of Amalek, Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. And Joshua wins the battle against Amalek in Exodus 17, verse 13. And Amalek was once first, but will one day be last, Numbers 24, verse 20. And Amalek allies itself with other enemies in battle against God's people in Judges chapter 3, verse 13, right? All this like our fleshly nature. So using this picture, we see that Saul's failure to deal with Amalek when God told him uh, God told him to end him, right? It ended in ruin with an Amalekite delivering the death blow. In the same way, when we fail to deal with the flesh as God prompts us, we can expect that area of the flesh to come back and deliver some deadly strikes. So we can imagine that uh, Amalekite smiling as he said this, assuming David was delighted that his enemy and rival was dead. Now David could take the royal crown and bracelet and wear, uh, wear them himself, right? So this guy thought he was doing David a favor. <clears throat> so verse 9, anguish can also be translated my coat of mail or my embroidered coat hindereth me right? In verse 10, the crown is a small metallic cap or wreath which encircled the temples, serving the purpose of a helmet, with a very small horn projecting in front as an emblem of power. We will see the horn is always a display of power. And that uh, that metaphor will be used in the book of Revelation as well. The bracelet and the book of Daniel. The bracelet that was on his arm, this is an armlet worn above the elbow. It's an ancient mark of royal dignity, and it's still worn by kings in some eastern countries today.
All right, verses 11 and 12, David's reaction, mourning for Saul. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So when David heard of Saul's death, he mourned. We might have expected celebration at the death of his great enemy and rival, but David mourned. Out of pure jealousy, hatred, spite, and ungodliness, Saul took away David's family, home, career, and security and the best years of David's life. Saul was utterly unrepentant to the end, yet David mourned and wept and fasted when he learned of Saul's death, right? This contrast powerfully demonstrates that our hatred, bitterness, and unforgiveness are chosen and not imposed on us. As much as Saul did against David, he chose to become better instead of bitter, right? And these men had their own reasons to hate Saul, but they followed the example of their leader David and answered Saul's hatred and venom with love instead. So David's sorrow was first for Saul, but it was also for his great and close friend Jonathan. More than that, it was for the people of God as a whole, who were in dangerous and a desperate place and in light of the death of the king and the defeat by the Philistines. So David heard this life-changing news. The throne of Israel was now vacant. It seemed that the royal anointing he received some 20 years before might now be fulfilled with the crown set on his head. Nevertheless, David expressed little thought of himself. His generous soul, oblivious to itself, poured out a flood of the noblest tears man ever shed for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. And verse 12, you can compare the weeping of Jesus over the fall of Jerusalem, even when it was about to destroy him, right? Same parallel here. All right, verses 13 through 16, David executes the Amalekite. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So the young Amalekite probably believed that David was preparing to reward him. And despite many opportunities to to legitimately defend himself, David refused to reach out and destroy Saul in previous chapters. David knew that since God put Saul on the throne, it was God's job to end his reign, and woe to the one who puts forth his hand to destroy a God-appointed leader. So this shows that David's grief over Saul was real. He didn't put any false display of grief and then secretly honor the man who killed Saul. And there are many factors that might excuse what the Amalekite didn't said, right? Saul was in rebellion and hardened against God. Saul repeatedly and constantly tried to killed David. Saul was already near death. Saul asked the Amalekite to kill him, and it may be that the Amalekite merely discovered Saul's dead body. Yet none of these excuses mattered except for justified killing in war, self-defense, or lawful criminal execution. It is God's job to end a life, not ours. This is true of every human life, but it's even truer of a life and ministry of the Lord's anointed. God is fully able to deal with his servants, even those who only claim to be his servants. So the man had, at the outset, stated who he was, but the question was now formally and judicially put. In verse 15, this is just punishment of the Amalekite uh, precluded any untrue accusation by David's political opponents that he might have had a part directly or indirectly in the death of Saul. Though David had numerous opportunities to slay Saul himself, he always regarded him as the Lord's anointed. 
And in verse 16, David's reverence for Saul as the Lord's anointed was in his mind a principle on which he had faithfully acted on several occasions of great temptation. In present circumstances, it was especially important that his principle should be publicly known and to free himself from the imputation of being in any way accessory to the uh, crime of regicide was the part of a righteous judge, no less than of a good politician, right? So now we're going to get the song of the bow, and this uh, inanimable pathetic elegy is supposed by many writers to have become a national war song and to have been taught to the young Israelites under the name of the bow. The Hebrew and many classical writers gave titles to their songs from the principal theme. You can see Psalm 22 verse 1, uh, 36 verse 1, 60 verse 1, 80 verse 1, and 100 verse 1. All right. Verses 17, 18, introduction to the song of the bow. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So David's sorrow was sincere and deeply felt. He crafted a song to express the depth of his feeling. In the book of Jashar, this book is also mentioned in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, and it evidently contained a collection of early Hebrew poetry. We shouldn't think that this is a missing book of the Bible. It is a completely unjustified leap over logic to say that if the Bible mentions an ancient writing, and if that ancient writing has any material in common with biblical books, that writing is genuinely scripture and is a lost book of the Bible, our Bibles are complete and completely inspired. So although the words the use of are a supplement by our translators, they may be rightly introduced for the natural sense of this parenthetical verse is that David took an immediate measures for instructing the people in the knowledge and practice of archery, their great inferiority to the enemy in this military arm having been the main cause of the late national disaster, right? The book of Jasher is also mentioned, right, as we covered in Joshua chapter 10 verse 13 and 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 53 in the Septuagint. It was a history of the wars of Israel, right? Jeshurun. Deuteronomy 32 verse 15, right? All right, verses 19 through 27, the song of the bow. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields or of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and how the weapons of war perished. So in this song, David showed the great love and generosity in his heart towards Saul. And it showed that David didn't kill Saul with a sword or in his heart. He saw the beauty in Saul. He wanted no one to rejoice over the death of Saul. He wanted everyone to mourn, even in the mountains 
lands and fields. He praised Saul as a mighty warrior. He complimented the personality and loyalty of Saul, right, not divided. And he called the daughters of Israel to mourning and praised the good Saul did for Israel. All this is a powerful testimony of how David kept his heart free from bitterness, even when he was greatly wronged and sinned against. David fulfilled 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which states, Love thinks no evil. And David knew the principle of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, which states, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. David could do this because of his great trust in God and God's power. He knew that God was in charge of his life, and even if Saul meant it for evil, God could use it for good. And such a magnanimous attitude on the part of one who had suffered so much at Saul's hand is incomprehensible apart from a deep commitment to the Lord. And David doesn't say it, but we understand that Saul fell long before this. He fell when he hardened his heart against God, against the word of God through a prophet, and against the man after God's own heart. Saul's death on Gilboa was a sad conclusion to his prior fall. So David's mourning for Jonathan makes more sense to us. Jonathan was David's deep friend and partner in serving God. And had David followed God's plan for marriage to one woman faithful for a lifetime, he might have found more fulfillment in his marriage relationship. We remember that David's own experience of love with women was not according to God's will. His multiple marriages kept him from God's ideal, one man and one woman and one flesh relationship. There is not the slightest hint that David and Jonathan expressed their love in a sexual way. They had a deep godly love for each other, but not a sexual love. Our modern age often finds it difficult to believe that love can be deep and real without it having a sexual aspect. So verse 19, literally the gazelle or antelope of Israel is an animal. An animal is the chosen type of beauty and symmetrical elegance of form, right? How are the mighty fallen is his theme in verses 19, 25, and 27. And verse 21, to be deprived of the genial atmospheric influences which in those anciently cultivated hills seem to have reared plenty of first fruits in the corn harvest was the greatest calamity the lacerated feelings of the poet could imagine. To cast away the shield was mounted a national disgrace. The shield of Saul is pictured by David as lying upon the mountains, no longer polished and ready to be worn in action, but cast aside as worthless and neglected. In ancient times, shields, whether made of leather or of metal, were oiled to keep them in good condition. Yet on that fatal battle of Gilboa, many of the Israelite soldiers who had displayed unflinching valor in former battles, forgetful of their own reputation and their country's honor, threw away their shields and fled from the field, right? So a lesser saint would have rejoiced that his enemy had uh, fallen, but David was a man after God's own heart and felt keenly the tragedy of Saul's sin. Of course, David's dear friend Jonathan was also dead. The sin of a disobedient father had brought judgment upon innocent people, including his own son. David's lamentation is touching, and you can see Proverbs 24, verse 17. This song of the bow connects with Jonathan's use of the bow in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 20. There are no unkind words about Saul in this song. David's chief concern is that the Lord's anointed had been slain and the Lord's glory had been dimmed. He is anxious that the unsaved enemy not rejoice over this victory. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23, Saul stood higher than any other man, but now he had fallen lower than the enemy. And that covers 2 Samuel chapter 1. Next time, we will talk about David and the war with Ishbosheth. Thank you for joining me.